one thing that I noticed that I was doing every single day, I would go to shower and I would notice my body feeling or looking different. And I would go, I would hear myself say, ugh. So even though I felt like that ugh was deserved, I made this commitment to not speak to myself that way, whether that was out loud or in my own head. So every day when I would catch myself doing that, I would say like, I noticed that my stomach's gotten bigger. I was allowed to not like it. I was allowed to feel frustrated, but I wasn't allowed to bully. Hello to all the amazing Heart to Healing listeners. I can't believe we've already come to the end of season three. I've absolutely loved all of your wonderful comments about the episodes. And just to know that it's been a real comfort for some of you going through your own struggles has felt incredibly rewarding. I feel like we've already got such a brilliant and inspiring community, and I really can't wait for that to expand every season. So summer has begun, and I know it's usually a time to rest, reset, and enjoy yourselves. But I'd love to share a few more bonus episodes with you that I've recorded, which are too good to wait until the next season. So welcome to the Summer Specials. On today's Summer Special, I'm joined by Stephanie Michelle, a certified coach, occupational therapist, intuitive eating counsellor with a background in human development and mental health psychology. Perhaps more importantly, she has first-hand experience with recovery from over 20 years of body and food disorders. Her disordered eating began when she was a teenager, and she then struggled with bulimia, binge eating disorder, and orthorexia well into her 30s. The binge restrictive cycle dominated her life, and she lived in fear of gaining weight. However, one day, she decided to enlist the support of a coach to help her change her relationship with her body, and this began to aid her recovery. Stephanie now has made it her mission to help others reframe their thought patterns, heal their relationship with food, and discover an identity outside of food and body image. So I'm going to start by asking about your own experience of living with an eating disorder for so many years and what that looked like for you. My eating disorder started when I was a teenager, kind of that pubescent time frame, which is pretty common for a lot of people, right? So I was, I'd always had like um, more of, I was called like bigger boned as a child. So I had somewhat of a, a consciousness about my body image and food as a younger child, but it was in my teens that I started to really understand like the impact of weight loss on peer validation and just feeling like I had a sense of control in my life. So um, I started to lose weight and realized, oh, you know, like this is how this works. This is how you do it. And I started to, it became like just an addiction almost like an addictive cycle. And I lost a lot of weight and was, would have qualified for anorexia at the time. My parents kind of noticed that and they intervened um, and said, like, you have to start, you need to start eating or you can't play sports anymore. You're going to have to see a doctor. And it really scared me. So I literally started to eat and I um, started to binge. It was like one to the next right away. And for the next 25 years, it was basically just like sliding in and out of restrictive periods, binge periods, bulimia, orthorexia, and all sort of combinations of all of those things. And I, I was just caught in that cycle constantly. I thought that was just how I was going to live. And I was almost 40 when I started to realize that there was um, an entire school of thought that, that suggested that I didn't have to control my body size anymore. The body neutrality movement was like quite new. It was a completely new concept to me at the time. And I started reading about it and learning about it. And 
went that route and and kind of got out of this hamster wheel I was on. I think that that was due to a number of factors, but I took a year of my life to just dedicate to this healing process. And I am here now, having been recovered for now almost four years. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm curious as to what you think flicked that switch. Obviously, there was the body positivity movement and body neutrality movement. But what for you mentally went on that made you think, actually, I just can't do this anymore? It was sheer exhaustion. So I was at a point at that time, this is in my later 30s, and I have three kids, I have three girls. And honestly, to be honest with you, some people will say that is the switch. For me, it wasn't. I I had wished that it could be, but I couldn't recover even for my children. Like there was just no way of doing that, try as I might. But I think right up until that year before I sort of embarked on this journey for myself, I was fasting and um, I was into keto and I was doing the, it was becoming more and more drastic. These, these, the compensations to my binges were becoming so drastic. And that the divide between like the intensity of my restriction and the intensity of my, of my binges was so, I think it was the first time that I actually thought to myself really and, and sincerely, I would rather recover than worry about my body size. It just edged it out by a bit because of that exhaustion level that I was in. I I felt like this was completely unsustainable. And I started to understand that I had just basically been doing the same thing in different forms for over two decades, you know, two and a half decades. And I was like, oh, that's what my life is going to look like. That is what the rest of my life will look like if I keep going this way. That realization just kind of hit me in a really big way as I, because you know how you always think, or I, I did. I always would think to myself, okay, this is the year I'm going to get it together. Every birthday, every like new year, it was like, I'm going to do this time. I know the method this time. And it was always like that. And I was like, oh, that's what I do all the time. And it never changes. It's the same story, different book. And it's, this is a different path. This is something I've never done. And so the idea that I might be able to like actually recover, even if it meant gaining weight was worth it to me for the first time hearing the the level of exhaustion again it's that the excitement almost that gets stored up during the well that keeps you restricting in order to binge thinking oh well it's okay because I'm building up to this amazing binge that's going to be really exciting and I'm going to give myself every treat under the sun it just wears off and I think slowly slowly you sit there and you start eating the food and you're like well what was that all about and you start I think as that dialogue starts that's the road to recovery, I think. Yeah, I remember. So it was my 39th birthday. So my husband and I had started this tradition somewhere along my mid-30s where we started to go to New York City every for a weekend, for like a two or three day weekend around the time of my birthday. And it was my 39th birthday. And I spent way more time in the weeks leading up to it, planning the restaurants and the binge dessert place <laughs> than I did like thinking about where we were going to stay or what we were going to see and what we we're going to do. And um, the entire weekend was built around the food and the walking. So I was like, okay, we'll walk from here to across the Brooklyn bridge and we'll come back. And we'll, and it was all about like, how can I eat and compensate at the same time? Like that was what this whole thing was about. And I remember planning the meal and then planning the huge ice cream sundae dessert bar after. And I remember being so excited, so excited, like about being able to eat this and also not being able to eat it guilt-free because I was going to walk it off and this whole thing. And I remember like sitting down and actually eating that sundae and 
it was the most anticlimactic Sunday because I was really, this was around the time I was really starting to recognize what, what I was doing and like realizing that all of this excitement around this food was not in reality what it was in theory. And that like, it, it was actually really cold and I could barely taste the flavor because it was just so cold and all the toppings like where they weren't quite what I wanted and the consistency. And I was sitting there and there were people around and it just wasn't this magic moment. And I was like, it's, what am I doing? Like, it, I'm not reaching this thing. Like, what, what is this thing? What am I even after? You know, I just started to see it like more deconstructed in this way. And that was the beginning. It was that year before my 40th birthday that I started to really start seeing things differently. And it wasn't until about a year later that I actually recovered. Ironically, on my 40th birthday was the, was the day that I was like, you know what? I am no longer compensating or, or restricting my food. And that was from that day forward, I, di I didn't. And that was the beginning. But that year prior, like that's exactly what it was. It was like recognizing this strange anticlimax of this fantasy that that binging would hold for me and um and all of the mental space it was taking up planning it and then it wasn't even there <laughs> you know you start to see it as more than just a food issue at some point when i think in all the years prior i had just always assumed it was just about the food yeah totally and i think that's something that is happening with me currently is that suddenly you're like well actually why do I want to binge what's actually going on and being able to then rationalize that and as you say gain the awareness to be like no stop Pandora because you know that actually it's not going to be that epiphany and that magical moment as you described the ice cream isn't going to taste as flavorsome as you think it mm -hmm. will those salty caramels aren't as delicious as you think they are or whatever you've resisted that you've put on such a pedestal it's just not going to be that sacred moment that your mind has yeah. led you to believe that it will be. Yeah, which can be kind of depressing. Actually, I have some clients now who talk about like when that element gets sort of taken away, it's it's both freeing and scary because it's kind of like, oh, well, then it's just food, you know, and then what am I going to pin my hopes and dreams on? <laughs> it's no longer this like solace. Well, absolutely. And I think that's another thing that I was actually discussing earlier today. I don't, there's part of me that doesn't want to lose the ability to binge. It's like, well, if I stop being so controlling, then I can't go to a restaurant and have a complete blowout and feel that, oh, well, it's fine because I'll exercise it off tomorrow. Or, oh, well, I won't eat like this for another week. So it's, it's okay. And actually there's that part of your brain and that little inner demon that slightly seeks that ability to be able to do that and that permission slip to do that. And I think sometimes it's easier when people say, okay, well, what if you can still do that? Like, who cares yeah. if you go to a restaurant and have a blowout every now and then, what's going to happen? What's the worst that's going to happen? I think, as you say, accepting that your body might change, but actually not then enforcing the punishment system is what helps you get out of that hole. Oh, yeah. I couldn't have recovered without giving my body like permission to just do what it needed to do to recover. I, I just couldn't have. But the other thing, too, is that like what has changed in recovery is this idea of these drastic, more drastic highs and lows, almost like this dopamine chasing, where that big hit, that big reward, it was so comforting, you know, at times to think, OK, well, I can I can go find that somewhere. What I actually find now looking back is that I guess my dopamine or my feel good or my reward centers have now shifted from needing the bigger highs and lows, like more of that roller coaster syndrome, which my nervous system ran on for a lifetime up until more recently. And I find that now what I'm doing is I'm getting more steady, like day to day hits of like, I found more purpose in my life. I definitely have more access to like creativity and play and like 
being able to be present and to laugh and to be with my kids and smaller moments of the day have more reward for me than they used to. And so I don't crave the big hits anymore because my days aren't as restricted and myself isn't as restricted. So something shifted along the way for me, not intentionally. And it wasn't like a, I couldn't tell you the steps it took to get there. It just sort of happened where I no longer, I don't, I don't feel like I need to have those moments in the restaurant or, or like those big ice cream sundays. Of course, from a taste bud point of view, sure, like I can appreciate that. But I don't need that hit in that same way because I think my overall levels of, I guess, I don't know if it's inner peace or satisfaction or feel good or reward feels more stabilized in general. So that need has sort of dwindled. Actually, if someone's having something and I'm getting serious food envy, I actually have to make myself have a sip of that smoothie or a bite of that thing because otherwise I store it up in my head. And even though the binge might not happen tomorrow or a week later, in a month's time, I'm still thinking about that thing that I restricted myself and that I, oh, I really want to try that. So I'll go off and I'll travel for half an hour to get that stupid chocolate. (laughs) And in fact, and then like you say, the anticlimax of then sitting down to eat this thing and realizing that it's actually disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) And for someone who hasn't had an eating disorder, it sounds like sheer madness. And they're like, get a grip. Yeah. And I also think that there is a difference between somebody who's never had an eating disorder or disordered eating and someone who has. It's almost like there's a switch inside that gets flipped um, where the body and the the mind, I think it's both physiological and psychological, where there's this recognition that there is a restriction, that there is something we don't have access to. And as human beings who are threatened by scarcity, again, both physiologically and psychologically, that part of us, that part of the brain and body wake up and they're like, oh, like I recognize that there's something I don't have access to that's making me seek it out all the more. It, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Whereas someone who doesn't has, doesn't have an understanding of that scarcity doesn't feel threatened by it. So there's not that impetus to go chasing something. Whereas as soon as, even still, I mean, I'm recovered. I, would, I don't have the behaviors anymore, but when there's some things that if I see I'm like, I need to eat that. I need to eat that because if I don't eat that, there's going to be some kind of scarcity that like just caught on to something and like started running with it. And I will, and I'll like try it and have it. And then it, it's abated and it like quiets the, the baby, so to speak. But it's not something that I think that everybody can relate to having not had um, a real sense of scarcity, like a felt embodied sense of scarcity in the, in the, in going on for them. So I'd love to ask you about body dysmorphia, because that's something that I know a lot of people struggle with. And especially in recovery, it's something that's, it's a real, real challenge. And I struggle with it now. And seeing your body go through changes and knowing, okay, I've got to do this, because you remind yourself of your goals, I want to be healthy. I might want a family someday. So I've got to get my period back. I want to do all these things and feel energized for life. And as you say, enjoy those small moments. It's a real ongoing obstacle to recovery, I think, and can sometimes stop you in your tracks. So what made you able, do you think, to bypass that? I I didn't bypass it. (laughs) Um, I cried a lot in recovery. And I actually, uh, I have a very supportive partner. So he would, I mean, I think there, I think basically every day I was saying, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. I'm too scared. I'm too, like, my body's changing and I, like, it's awful. And he was sort of my voice of reason. And he would say like, no, you you see this through, you do this. What I actually did was I said to myself, I give myself one year. And it was, I had very black and white thinking at the time. 
And so I needed to use that somehow. And I think I actually channeled my black and white thinking into this idea of, right, I am going to give myself one year to allow my body to do what it needs to do in recovery. And if at the end of that year, I have decided that this is not worth it or that I, it's just, it's, I can't stand it, <laughs> then I, I'm going to go back. I'm going to give myself permission to restrict again, but I need to give it that year. And I, and I, that was what I had to keep challenging day in and day out. I had to say like, oh, never mind, I can't do this a year. My husband would say, yes, you can. This you're doing this like just follow out the year, just do the. And that's what sort of got me through was a little bit of that support, to be honest. But I also gave myself the back door. I I, I think I needed to know that if it was too much and it was if I deemed it too unsafe, that I could go back to something that felt safer. Uh, and without that sort of caveat in the back of my mind. I don't know if I could have actually persevered. At the end of the day, I didn't. I didn't do that. I didn't need to do that. But I certainly relied on the option for a really long time. It gave me permission to just explore what it was like to gain weight and to expect to gain weight and to say, I've pre-decided that that's going to happen. So when it does happen, I don't have to be so terrified of it because I was expecting it. There's something different about like knowing that's happening, meaning, okay, I must have established safety with that somewhere in my rational mind at some point in this process. And therefore it happening now, it was predictable and that makes me feel better versus it just happening sort of without, without my awareness. Because I think in the past I had tried to recover quote unquote, but I always did it like thinking, okay, I'll do it without gaining weight. I'll do it without gaining weight. And then when I would gain the weight, it seemed like, oh no, this wasn't part of the plan. Um, and that would scare me. But if it was part of the plan, it felt more, I don't know, it was something that I could hold on to. And along the way, I developed techniques. And actually what I coach around now are the techniques that I developed as I was moving along. So they're not things I learned from anyone else. They were actually things that I was like, how do I cope with this today? How, what do I need to do to wrap myself around my brain around what's going on and to get through, you know, how do I function today? And so the little things, little ways that I would sort of challenge my own cognition or use an embodied approach or um, just all the different ways that I like managed are, are just the things that I actually talk about now in courses and in, in, in my own podcast and in my coaching. It's just made up of lots of little techniques um, and they, some work some days and some don't, um, but it's just like the effort to keep trying them and just to keep showing up for yourself. So will you talk us through some of those techniques? What would you say are the top five and, and the ones that seem to resonate most powerfully with your clients? Yeah. So like one thing that I noticed that I was doing every single day, I would get up in this year, right, of this year when I was re recovering and I would get in the, I would go to shower and I would notice my body feeling or looking different. And I would go, I would hear myself say, ugh. And I would do this every single day until I started to notice how I was like sort of bullying my own body out loud every single morning. And at some point I was like, that's rude. <laughs> um, I think this was around the time I was reading about body neutrality and sort of like, this seems like counterproductive to a body that I'm trying to be neutral about. So even though I felt like that, that sort of ugh was deserved, I made this commitment to not speak to myself that way, whether that was out loud or in my own head. So every day when I would catch myself doing that, I would like sort of rewind the tape and be like, wait, let me do that again. And I would sort of just take away the ugh part. Or I would say like, I noticed that my stomach's gotten bigger and just leave it as a fact and like put the like period at the end of the sentence rather than like making the judgment of like, ugh, that's so gross. Ugh, how disgusting, you know? And just that little shift in self-talk like it was a bit of a no tolerance policy for my own negativity I was allowed to not like it I was allowed to 
feel frustrated, but I wasn't allowed to bully with these sort of like condescending tones or, or grunts <laughs> that I would do. And that was pivotal to me, just like taking that piece away from me, myself, because it's a real burden to feel like you're, you've got a critical eye with you all the time that every single time you come into contact with your own body, you're like disgusted by it. You know, like that's really actually horrible. It's a terrible feeling. And so even though you feel like you deserve it, it's bullying. And and I took that out. I also talk a lot about like living in first person instead of third person. So there were many, many moments where I would notice that my point of view would move from being inside of my body and inside of my life, like looking out. And then I would suddenly come into contact with someone or I'd put on clothes or I would read an article and suddenly I would like almost imagine that I was being looked at. Like I would, I would imagine myself from the point of view of an objectified human being rather than like a person just moving about almost like, Oh, I just realized I'm, I have a body and like, it's gross, you know, like that's what I would think to myself. And it would have been this complete shift where like two minutes before I had just been like talking to my kids, packing a lunch for them, you know, like emailing. And I was just like inside of my body, not thinking about how I looked. And I noticed that the more that I was able to say like, no, like shift back to first person, come back, bring that like camera lens around to the inside looking out rather than the outside looking at, that was a practice that I started to visualize and like really, and it was hard. And again, some days I couldn't quite not do it. I couldn't help but objectify myself, especially if I was triggered by like a mirror image or a photograph. Those were really hard to get out of my head. But if I was just noticing myself sort of objectifying myself, I would try to get back to like the couple minutes before where I had just been doing something and not in, you know, associating myself with, with my own image. And I guess the other one is noticing the way that the body like sensations feel. So a lot of times I'll have clients who say, I feel physically uncomfortable in my own skin. Like I want to crawl out of it. I really can't stand the way it feels to have my underwear feel tighter or to feel my stomach in places where I couldn't feel it before, like roles where they weren't before. I think about that in two parts. Like the first part of that process is that you are just getting input from a sense, unless it's painful, it's just neutral sensory input coming onto your skin. So we have receptors in all of in our skin that take, you know, the temperature of something, the pressure of something, the sharpness or dullness of something. It's just information in the skin that's letting us know that something is there. So let's say that you feel you sit down and you could feel sort of like your stomach on your on your own stomach, like you feel it rolling on itself or coming into contact in some way. The first part of that process is simply is all neutral. It's it's just your skin saying to your brain, there's something here. And that's it. The second part is the story we make from that. So I started to deconstruct and I and I like have a process of like how do we deconstruct the those two parts of the story where, that feel very much like one thing, but it's actually two where we're getting some kind of sensory input and then we're putting it through a filter of and this means and whatever it comes after that. And that's where we're having the discomfort. And that's where we're having the, the hangups. And it's kind of like, let's just take this as a set, like explore this as just sensory information. And if it didn't mean anything, like what would it actually feel like? Is it actually intolerable? Is it, you know, without the story, what does it feel like? And then working on the story part and investigating the story part, like what does it mean to you? And for example, for myself, I remember feeling like when I would feel my skin in a certain way, I had an image come up in my mind of like people in my life, my family, actually, that I was thinking, oh, now I look like them. And that was the story. And then all of a sudden I was assigning myself the qualities of 
my family members and all the things and all the stories associated with that. And it was like this whole thing that was going on outside of my awareness coming from just a little bit of sensory input. And so I started to have to deconstruct and work on like, what is the story about my family and what it means and what, you know, what does the culture tell me about what it means to be, to not have a thigh gap anymore, you know, like to, to feel my thighs touching, like there's a story there. Like what is my value system now? Does this story make sense to me anymore? And then to validate the parts of the story that feel true and that feel like they are hard and, and recognizing that, but also asking it questions and challenging some of the, the ideas that we've just inherited that are happening lightning fast in the brain, um, really sort of like slowing them down and seeing what makes sense to us and what, what doesn't anymore. That's what's so fascinating is, is the speed at which these thoughts happen and how automatic they become. And I think, as you say, it's disengaging from the automatic response and actually being able to see that actually I'm no longer that person and I'm reminding myself of my value system now and what my goals are currently. And I think what you said before about creating that safety net, look, if this goes really wrong, if in a year's time this doesn't work out, then I've got to get out clause. But that ability to just stick with it I think for a period of time is also something that I mean now I'm in a much better space but before I would teeter on the edge of putting on some weight getting healthier and then I would just crawl back into the hole and it would be like I would just retreat into hibernation and I couldn't face the fact that I didn't have the thigh gap and I couldn't face the fact that my tummy stuck out way further than it ever had before and that I didn't have skeletal arms or whatever body markers you choose to focus on and it's as you say it's being able to then redress the thought pattern behind why you hold those beliefs in the first place yeah and I think also recognizing that it's not a vanity issue too like um I think the word safety is is a huge, it's probably the foundational word to use ar- around this stuff. There is a there is a threat to your safety when it comes to what it means to now be in a body that maybe you've previously, a bigger body than you've been in, you know, up until this point. Like we know that a smaller body to some degree like keeps us safe somehow, even if it's just in theory, right? Like it's the the promise of safety, even similar to the promise of this, you know, the, the joy of a binge. But I think so much of it is about learning how to be safe in a in your body wherever it grows, wherever it ends up, and it takes time to establish that sense of safety. And if in that time it takes to realize, wait, I'm still accepted, I'm still loved, I'm, I still belong, I'm still me. You know, like that was another thing is like recognizing that, like even as my body changed, all the things I thought that would happen when I like all my world that would fall apart if I gained weight, like that wasn't happening. Like everything, all my days were still lining up the same way, but it takes time to realize that yes, it is safe here. Actually it is safe here, but it's like building a relationship and that takes months and months to really feel safe. And so if in that time there's too much lack of safety, that's where I think that retreat comes in where we're like, there's something in me that's so threatened and so primally threatened that I can't, I feel completely, I have a client who says it feels like I'm going to die. Um, she's like, why does it feel like I'm going to die? And I think it's because it is tied to some more primal sense of if I gain weight, I have coded it in my mind to mean that I will not be seen or I will I will be seen or I won't be loved or I won't be valuable. I won't be admired and not being admired means I won't get X, Y, Z. You know, like there's there's actual human needs that that are tied to our beliefs around our body size. And so we it's a slow line to tread, you know, to, to figure out how to stay safe as you gain weight and how to, how to do that slowly enough that you don't stretch yourself too far out of your comfort zone because you could really frighten the primal part of you that's really relied on body size to feel like everything's okay. 
This episode of Hurt to Healing is sponsored by our friends at The And Partnership. The And Partnership is a global communications business working with clients like Toyota, Mars, Coca-Cola and NatWest, as well as charities like the Princess Trust and RNIB. They believe that by bringing diverse talent together in partnership, they can transform the way that great brands are built. They call it the power of and. On the Hurt to Healing podcast, we know that having honest conversations about mental health can help us to see different points of view and to better understand ourselves. Just like the and partnership's belief in the power of and, we believe that by coming together to share our stories, we make ourselves and each other stronger. To find out more about the work the and partnership creates, visit theandpartnership.com. That's T-H-E-A-N-D partnership.com. And a massive thank you to the AM Partnership for supporting my mission and showing what we can achieve when we come together. I'm really intrigued as to how you help people just sit then in that space of body acceptance and being okay with being bigger and realizing that people love you for your essence, as you alluded to. That's something that I keep reminding myself is. I'm still Pandora, regardless of whether I weigh a stone or two lighter, or I'm a stone or two heavier, people aren't going to abandon me and suddenly reject me. So how do you get clients to sit through that wave of discomfort? So it's a slow approach of integrating a whole bunch of things. And one of those things is from the logical and intellectual mind, uh, which is one pathway that we're dealing with is recognizing all the ways that we've really pathologized weight itself and like even things like cellulite, right? So I used to be humiliated about my cellulite. I thought it was the worst thing you could have. And that was from years and years and years of indoctrination and magazines. You know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s where like, I mean, like I just remember all the magazines I had and the filter and the photoshopping, you know, are on legs, you know, like no, there was never a cellulite. You just never saw it the only times you ever saw cellulite was to pathologize it. And certainly like the adults in your life, you know, we're talking about like getting rid of it and all the creams to get rid of it. So there was such an indoctrination of like why it's bad and to start looking at it from the lens of like the history of this, like how beauty culture has evolved, how diet culture has evolved, how weight ideals have changed over time and to understand the messaging we've been getting and not the inherent pathology of something like cellulite being just a way that our, you know, the, the fascia on our skin is sitting on the, you know, the, the cross section of fascia, like the, just from a scientific point of view, like what it is and how normal it actually is. I'm a big advocate of using visual imagery to combat the default imagery we're getting on a regular basis in like social media and all forms of media really. And so I, every day on my social media accounts, post images of all sorts of bodies different colors, different sizes, different genders, different textures, different, like just all the ways we humans have bodies. Um, because now we have so much more access to that because there's personal accounts like po- and, and influencers and things posting more than just a perfect body. And so it's really important to be feeding your brain with more imagery. Um, so that's one way, way is like addressing that on the intellectual side. And the other side, you know, from more of that like visceral place, that more embodied place is there's such an identity we build up around um, having a certain body size and we can really become, in fact, I have a client who this morning was saying, I'm, I'm really having a hard time not being the tiny one. That can be an identity. You know, like I'm the tiny one. I'm this light little creature. That's how people know me. That's how I've been seen. Therefore, that's who I am. 
And so a lot of it is like, who are we outside of that? Like so often I meet clients who have such little self-esteem in any other regard or really just don't see themselves in any capacity that has much merit except for the way we look. And so it's focusing on and really nurturing the parts of us. And I think many times with clients, it's like pointing it out a lot of the time. So I, I think, I think my clients are all great. I have never met, had a client that I didn't like. Um, and there's such like, some people are just so funny and they don't even know it. Or some people are really, really insightful and um, really warm or really authentic. And just really, some people have such great energy to be around. And I point that out so that they can start to recognize like how people actually see you in ways that you're not necessarily even giving yourself credit for. And then building that up and building that up until we start to notice those things more often in our interactions. And we're like, oh yeah, people do see me for this. I am noticing that. Or I do notice that like I am this type of person. And that is something that I value about myself. And that's a slow build as well. And then I also offer um, WhatsApp coaching because this is more day to day. And I found that like in my own experience of therapies and things, seeing somebody once a week was not enough for me. I needed someone to hold my hand every day. Like I needed to talk to someone who got it, who could help me out every day. And so that's a way, like I think that kind of like consistency of support is hugely in this work in, in, in eating disorder and body, you know, like this is, this is something that every second of every day almost could feel like it's constantly on your mind. So there's a lot more support we need. And being a voice of like a safe place to land when we're having moments where we feel like, oh my gosh, I'm so unsafe. I'm so unsafe. I'm so unsafe. I'm going to die. <laughs> to have somebody you can go say like, this is how I'm feeling. What do I do? I need help. I just need to be heard. I need to organize my thoughts. I need to get this out. I need to feel safe. And then to have a voice come back and say, hey, I, you know, like, yeah, I totally hear you. Like to validate it, somebody who understands it, somebody who can sort of reframe it, somebody who can just hold the space for it, I think is invaluable. That's something I wish that I'd had when I was going through my year and kind of what I used my husband for. <laughs> um, but that's why I build it into my coaching. I'd love to know what advice you give to younger women who are struggling with their own issues around food or body image. What would you say to them if they haven't yet reached out for help? I think that younger people, especially um, now, are faced with something like almost different than when, when I was younger because of social media. I think that the comparison going on and the pressure and expectations in social media and even things like... Botox injections at such a young age, like there's so much pressure to appear in a certain way, I think more than ever before. But there is also so much like for as toxic as that as social media, I think can be and such an such a powerful force it can be for destructive tendencies, it can also be um, a place to find absolute refuge. And so um, because social media tends to be such a, a huge part of everybody's life, and especially when I think you're younger, it's probably always been a part of your life. Um, whereas for me, like I didn't grow up with it, but so curating social media to reflect what it is that you're after, to reflect the energy that you're after, to reflect the kind of people and the authenticity that you want to like embody and people who are bringing messages that make you feel like alive and full rather than deflated and like leave you and feeling like you're comparing yourself to something I think is to the extent that it's that you're able to kind of like curate that to do so. I have clients who have like two separate accounts, one which is personal. It's like, this is the place where like, I have to follow my friends and I have to, you know, like I keep up with certain things. And this other account that they can go to when they're feeling, I call it what I call a red light day, where it's just like one of those days that's like you just, everything is, tri is a trigger. <laughs> um, to have that place be like, you know what? I'm not going to go on my personal account today. I'm going to go to my like 
this other account where I'm just seeing thing after thing that feels supportive and helpful and hopeful. Having a safe space like that to completely like immerse yourself in, I think is really important because everything else in our day-to-day is so immersive on the other side of the spectrum. I think conversations we were having with people like in workplaces, in schools, peers, social media, like there's an influx of messaging that's saying we're not good enough. And so we need to create our own space for feeling like we are and know that there's resources out there at any given time, 24 hours a day that you can just go and like go in that bubble and, and like exist for a little while for the reprieve. I think it's hugely important for our mental health because we don't realize how much is impacting us on a subconscious level. So if we're getting that everywhere else and every other moment of our day and every other aspect of our life, we need to have a place to counteract some of that. And it has to be curated on purpose and with intention because it's not just there by default. And how can family members and friends, partners, I mean, I know you were incredibly lucky with your husband, but people who are just clueless and just always end up by making clumsy comments. And I mean, some of the, I'm sure as you know, all too well, just some of the comments people make when you're recovering from an eating disorder is just absolutely just mind baffling. <laughs> but what what advice would you give those people if, if they are looking to be helpful and supportive? I guess like the the place where I have personally been the most affected by those clumsy comments has been uh, when people are trying to fix it and people are trying to help. And it comes from a very well-meaning place and often ends up getting like lost in translation. And so one of the most helpful things that I figured out I needed was that I just wanted a place to go and be like held (laughs) physically actually as well, but also just emotionally without anyone trying to fix me because I never changed from anything anyone else ever tried to tell me, you know, like that was never where it came from. So I think the support system, if you are supporting somebody and you're, you don't have personal experience with having gone through it is just to be there, like to be part of that safety net, to be part of someone whose presence alone is just saying, I am here, I am here. I'm not here to fix you. I'm just here. I think we have this idea that we're, we need to like make it better for someone. And we've, we feel uncomfortable with other people's uncomfortable emotions. And that can feel like, okay, well, let me just make it better. And in that effort to make it better, it usually makes it worse. (laughs) It can. And so just your simple presence is absolutely enough. And it's exactly what I think um, sometimes we need is just to know someone's there who's listening. And I was going to ask you whether you're ever triggered by clients, but I I just know what the answer is because you seem so sorted and just level-headed about now your attitude towards food and and eating and I'm sure sometimes the thoughts might kick in but I think probably when you're as far into your recovery as you are you realize that there's just no you get to that point of no turning back because you realize the richness of life and what it can offer yeah that's not to say people ask me that a lot do you get triggered by clients and I I really don't but I it's not to say I haven't had a thought of something like somebody might say something that will might attempt to trigger me but I know what to do with it now because I've had a lot of practice <laughs> with with like managing my own thoughts and recognizing my own thoughts and being like, oh, that's just a thought. I know what to do with that thought. And that has become almost as lightning fast as those original thoughts were. So I don't feel, I don't get to a point of triggerability because I think that I, I, I guess I have boundaries up around that and I, I know how to handle that the same way that I would my own thoughts. So um, I guess I feel lucky. I guess I should feel lucky because that question does come up. And I, I, I suppose I never really thought about it from that point of view. But um, yeah, no, it's it's just, it's. I love working with people around this. It's something that brings me a lot of joy and not a lot of triggerability and, anymore. 
Well, that's really lovely to hear. And you're, I mean, such an inspiration. And I've just absolutely adored this conversation. I could talk to you for absolutely hours. <laughs> and I'm definitely going to look into doing one of your courses because I think they look ah. absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you so much. It was really nice to meet you and to talk to you as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Mm-hmm.